Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3. At the annual family reunion picnic, the young bride led her new husband to the rocking chair, where an older woman sat busily crocheting. Granny, she said, touching her hand affectionately, this is my new husband. The older woman eyed him critically for a long moment and then asked bluntly, Do you desire children? Startled by her bluntness, the young man blushed and then stammered, Well, uh, uh, yes, I do, very much. Well, she said, looking scornfully at her large tribe gathered around six large picnic tables, try to control it. (laughs) Today we're going to talk about family. God's family. Now, we're going to see that God loves his family, and he wants his family to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, as you recall, was uh, his first epistle, probably written probably around 49 AD. Remember that he had traveled to this Galatian region, uh, modern-day Turkey, several years early, planted several churches in four different cities, and then they had left and gone back to Antioch in Syria, Uh, And after Paul and Barnabas left, the Jews came from Jerusalem and began to teach another gospel. Uh, The key issue in human existence has always been the same question. How can sinful people and holy God have a relationship? That's always been the central question. And Paul had taught these Galatian believers that the only way to be made right with God was through faith alone in Christ's finished work on the cross as payment for their sins. The Jews for Jerusalem came up to these churches and said, Paul is lying to you. Faith in Christ alone is not enough. You have to add your good works on top of that. To have a right relationship with God, you have to add human effort to Christ's finished work. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the Jewish law, all 613 commands, right? And so Paul writes this letter of Galatians to these churches to defend the gospel. By the way, if you're wondering what the gospel is, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, what? But through me. He didn't say no one comes to the Father, but through me, plus good works, plus circumcision, plus keeping the Ten Commandments, plus Sabbath day, plus plus nothing. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Paul says, that's the gospel I've been teaching. Faith alone, in Christ alone, for salvation, plus nothing else. So he's defending the gospel. Jesus, only Jesus is the only way to heaven. So as we've been going through the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul's been defending his apostleship since these so-called Judaizers have been attacking Paul's legitimacy as an apostle. They say he's not a legitimate apostle, and therefore his message, his gospel message, is also not legitimate. And Paul defends his apostleship. He gives his own testimony of how faith in Christ changed his life, moved him from a a murderer to a missionary, from an adversary to an advocate. And now in in Galatians 3, Paul, as we talked a little bit about last week, defends justification by faith and attacks the ineffectiveness of keeping the law as a a means of becoming right with God. So if you go to Galatians, yeah, we're right back to the beginning of the Bible. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. I'm just going to highlight the first few verses of this chapter and give you an overview. Paul tells the Galatian believers, look at your own experience. Look at your own experience, the first five verses of chapter 3. You received the Holy Spirit. God himself came to live in you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit because of your good works? Did anybody in the Old Testament receive the Holy Spirit because they kept the law? The answer is obviously no. 
The Holy Spirit's been doing miraculous work among these Galatian believers. Supernatural work. Paul says, did this supernatural work of the Holy Spirit come because you were such good law keepers? Clearly not. God gave you the Holy Spirit when you believed and by faith received Christ's payment for your sin. In chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, Paul says, look at your history. These Judaizers had been telling the Galatian believers, Moses is our prophet. Moses gave the law. Paul says, let's go back beyond Moses. Let's go to Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation and the father of faith. How was Abraham made right with God? Did Abraham keep the law? No, the law wasn't given until 600 years after Abraham died. So obviously he was not made right with God because of law keeping. Remember, God had told Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a son. Abraham was 75, Sarah was 65. They waited 25 years to change diapers. And by the time they got around to changing diapers, Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. And God said, no, no, you're going to have a son with the two of you at this stage of life. And it says Abraham believed God. And as a result of faith alone, God said, I declare you righteous. I declare you justified. You're no longer guilty before me because you believed in me. So Paul says, Abraham didn't keep the law. Abraham was not made right with God by law keeping. He was made right by God by faith, by believing in God. In, verse, in chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, God says, look at the evidence. You who really worship the law, you who think law keeping is so good. What does it take for the law to make you right before God? If you're going to trust in the law to make you right before God, how good do you have to be at it? He says the law doesn't bring a blessing. The law brings a curse. Because in order for the law to justify you, you have to keep it perfectly. 24-7, 365 for the rest of your life. And that includes your thought life, not just your behavior life. If you're angry with your brother, it's the same as murder. If you lust after someone, it's the same as adultery. So sin... Keeping the law is your thought life as well as your verbal life, what you speak, and your behavior life. Has anyone kept the law perfectly? Only one, Jesus Christ. So Paul says, trying to earn favor with God, trying to be justified with God, trying to be forgiven and reconciled with God so that you have a good relationship with Him, a right relationship with Him, based on law keeping is futile because no one can keep it except for Jesus Christ. And in chapter 3, verses 15 to 18, Paul says, look at the promises God made. The law was never designed to be permanent. This mosaic law, this keeping the law, this doing good works, this circumcision, this all the rituals, it was only designed to be temporary. Faith was designed to be permanent. The law only was in operation until Jesus came because the promises of God for justification were based on a coming Messiah, not on your ability to keep the law. So then Paul anticipates in, in verse 19 that they're going to ask the questions, well, if the law's got all these limitations, if the law's got all these problems, if the law doesn't justify you, if the law doesn't make you right with God, why in the world did God give us the law in the first place? What's the whole point? And in verse 19, Paul says that God gave the law to us to reveal and restrain human sin because the law points out human sin and makes us conscious of our guilt. See, if you don't know what God's standard is, God's standard of holiness, you know what? You, you think you're doing pretty well, right? You think, well, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. We live in a culture right now that has rejected God's law. Hey, would you agree with that? In today's culture, you can't even teach and you can't even post the Ten Commandments in a public space because people are afraid that someone might actually follow them. Isn't that remarkable? And yet the law courts are filled with litigation over people who fail to live up to the Ten Commandments that we don't want to teach because it's an imposition of religion. Remarkable. We've said that sin makes you stupid. The more you sin, the stupider you get because sin separates you from God, the source of all wisdom. So we're in a culture that rejects the wisdom of God 
you become more and more foolish. We live in a culture that has rejected God's law, and as a result, many people think that God's okay with their sin. Is God okay with sin? No. God always hates all sin. You know, the law is like a speed limit sign. How many of you saw a speed limit sign on the way to church today? I, I, I was going to ask you, how many of you ignored it, but you didn't even see it? So it's not a question of ignoring it, yeah. Now you know why the law is useless, right? You can't, yeah, a speed limit sign? What speed limit sign? I didn't see any speed limit sign. We live in a culture that does the same thing. Adultery? What's adultery? I'm clueless, right? So here's the point. If there is no speed limit sign, or if you don't know there's a speed limit sign, then you think you're doing fine. 65 in front of a school? I didn't see any 25 mile an hour sign. I, you know, come on, right? However, if they post the speed limit, then you can look at your dashboard and you know instantly whether you're what? Obeying the law or disobeying the law. So when God gave us the Ten Commandments, part of that is it's just to flat make us conscious of his standards. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Honor the, your father and your mother, etc., etc., right? So once you understand God's moral yardstick, then you can look in the mirror and accurately measure and find out where you fall short. So the ultimate reason God gave the law is not to make us holy. It's to make us aware that humans are incapable of living up to God's holy standards by their own efforts and they need a savior. So Paul says, look, the whole world is trapped by sin. It's like being held in custody in prison. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 3, verse 23. If you'd turn there, verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now this principle I wrestled with until just before I sent the message to Rob. So this metaphor came from the Holy Spirit because I'm not smart enough. Marin and I were talking about this two or three hours and I'm wrestling with what metaphor is this like. This is the one I think God gave me. Here's the principle. The law, the law is like the never satisfied drill sergeant at boot camp who motivates us to graduate. I'd initially said the law is like a mirror. It reveals the problem but provides no solution. How many of you look in the mirror and see there's a problem? The mirror doesn't provide the solution. Another metaphor, the law is like a thermometer. It reveals a problem, but doesn't provide a solution. Same thing, right? Okay. This one, I think, may be a little more accurate. The law is like the never satisfied drill sergeant at boot camp who motivates us to graduate. Charles Spurgeon once said, the law is like a, 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 a burning hot sun in the desert that drives the weary traveler to seek shade in the shelter of a giant rock. Of course, the notion being the giant rock would be Jesus. So before Christ came, Israel was restricted by the law. And God gave them the law, quite frankly, to protect them from Canaanite idolatry. Remember, God had told children of Israel, don't intermarry with those Canaanites because you're going to learn their gross, sexual, perverse, religious, idolatrous practices. And you don't want to learn that. So he gave them the law to restrict them. He gave them the law to protect them. The law was like, Paul says the word tutor. The law is like a tutor. Your translation may say schoolmaster. It may say guardian. Uh, the, the Greek is pedagogos. And it literally means a strict governess. A guardian, a guardian who tends a child. In Roman culture, all children of wealthy families were committed to the care of this guardian, this trusted slave, uh, usually from about age 6 to 16. So about 10 years, they were under the care of this guardian, uh, this tutor, as Paul says. And these trusted slaves were, were, of course, employed by the father and the mother of the family to watch over this child, this adolescent child. 
And these slaves were often very harsh disciplinarians. When you look at pictures of them in ancient pictures, they're carrying canes, right? You know, where you cane people and sticks and things like that, rods. So they, they guarded the child from danger. And part of their job was to make sure the child got to school. So they would take the child from the house and escort them to school, right? Lead them to school, get them there safely, and then bring them home again. And on the way, protect them from dangers and temptations. And they really trained them to obey. And they used corporal punishment pretty routinely, apparently, just like a drill sergeant, right? So before Jesus came, God's law functioned like these child guardians with a cane and a, and a stick. And God used the law to discipline Israel and to keep them away from evil, right? Do this, don't do that. The law revealed Israel's sin, but it didn't have the power to deliver them from evil, from sin. We already talked about the law being like a mirror. It, it shows us the problem, but it doesn't fix the solution today. And we see this today. In our culture, how many laws are on the books? Literally hundreds of thousands, right? All I can guarantee you is that every single person in this room today is a lawbreaker. We don't even know the laws we're breaking. There are so many of them. Passing the law never changed the human heart. There are tens of thousands of laws that forbid certain behavior, but passing a law never changed the human heart. Let me give you an example. On January 19th, 1920, the United States passed the 18th Amendment, forbidding the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating beverages. It did not, however, prohibit the possession or consumption of alcohol. This so-called noble experiment, that's what they really called prohibition, was a noble experiment, demonstrated that the human heart will find a way to get around any law. The 18th Amendment, however, allowed alcohol to be used for medicinal and religious purposes. As you can imagine, the number of registered pharmacies skyrocketed because alcohol was dispensed in these pharmacies for medicinal purposes, right? And enrollments in synagogues and churches soared because sacramental wine was legal, right? Sometimes there were gallons of sacramental wine that left the back door for medicinal purposes for the parishioners during the week because they had ailments, right? So passing more laws does not make us more righteous. More laws generally means more law-breaking and more burdens and less freedom. It's interesting that the Bible says when the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites, you can read this in Exodus 1, it says that they laid very heavy burdens on them, labor and rigor and hard, hard labor. And it said when their burdens became too great to bear, they cried out to God for deliverance. The impossibility of keeping the law should drive us to Christ. That's what Paul says. When you look at the law and you see God's holy standards and you realize that you're incapable of keeping those standards, completely incapable, it should motivate us to seek a savior. It's like salt on a dish motivates you to what? Seek water because you're thirsty at that point. When Christ came, Paul says, he delivered us, he delivered everyone who believes from the prison of the law. So the law is a standard that we cannot keep that drives us, that calls us to seek after salvation in Jesus Christ. Verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Here's the principle. Those who belong to God's family can do life together because in Christ we are both united and equal. Those who belong to God's family can do life together because in Christ we are both united and equal. 
So Paul says the law, these do's and don'ts, treated people under its authority like they were immature children, right? Immature children who needed rigid discipline. But now that Christ has come and you are saved by faith, you have become mature sons and daughters and no longer need a child guardian. Paul looks at these Galatians and says, these Judaizers are telling you to go back to the law. Why would you want to go back to being an immature child who needed all these rules and regulations and do's and don'ts, etc., right? Now, in Roman culture, when a young person came of age, they were given a special toga. It was an adult dress. It signified that they now had graduated from childhood to adulthood and that they possessed all the rights and the responsibilities as a full-fledged member, adult member of the family. And Paul says, you're clothed with Jesus Christ. When you come to Christ, you literally take off the old garments of the law and the rigid legalism and the do's and the don'ts and having to earn favor with God by what your behavior is, and you put on Christ's robe of righteousness. So when God looks at you, he looks at you through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not yourself. You no longer have to live with the burden of keeping the law. And that is a burden that none of us can bear. There are some religious systems that actually believe that you really do earn your right to salvation by assisting the grace of God with your own labor. Uh, I read an interview one time with uh, Pope John Paul II, and even the Pope himself said, I'm not sure that I've earned the right to get into heaven. That's a burden that God says you were never designed to carry that after Christ. Jesus Christ carried that burden of justification. So we have freedom, phenomenal freedom. So everyone who believes in Jesus by faith become children of God. And of course, in God's family, no child is superior. No child is inferior to any other child. In the first century, some Jewish men prayed this awful prayer. And it said, I thank God that thou hast not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. I don't think God was very excited about that prayer. Because he made both male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. He made all people. The status of people, slave or free, or how we treat men or women, that's a human distinction, not God's distinctions. So these three couplets refer to ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and gender. And those distinctions do exist, but in God's family, they don't matter. The gospel welcomes every single person, regardless of race, regardless of social standard, regardless of gender. It's irrelevant. No one has a greater position or greater privilege in God's family based on any human difference. Because God is a father that does not play favorites. And you know what that means? His children shouldn't either. The human distinctions that we have do not come from God. We should not allow any human differences to fracture our family fellowship because we are all equal in Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross and we're all united by Christ. We're saved by the blood of the Lamb and we're going to the same destination. And in heaven, your position is not going to be determined by you anyway. How many of us believe that we are more deserving of God's grace than someone else? So why do we behave like it here? Paul says, lay that stuff down. The truth is, we were all lost sheep when Jesus found us. We were all slaves when Jesus freed us. And we were all enemies when Jesus adopted us. Amen? How many of you are familiar with Bill and Gloria Gaither? One of their songs they wrote in 1970. I'm going to have Rob put it on screen. No, I'm not going to sing it, but look at the lyrics. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed by the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. The reality is we all have the same Father. We all get into the family by the same blood, by the same Savior. We're all going to the same destination. Amen? There's, so these human distinctions 
don't matter in God's family. We're equal and we're united and we need to remember that. So Paul's now been demonstrating the superiority of grace over the law. He tells the Galatians, why would you want to go back to being an immature child? Why would you go back to the legalism and the bondage of law keeping versus grace? Grace brings blessing. The law brings a curse. No one can keep the law. Why would you want to do that again? And now he's going to talk to them about a very well-known practice in Roman Greek culture of coming of age. And in the ancient world, by the way, Coming of age was both a legal and a cultural practice of really great importance. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now this I say, as long as the child is an heir, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So Paul's using this illustration from Roman life, that's the culture they're in, to demonstrate that people under the law are like an heir to an inheritance who cannot possess it yet due to their age and their youth and their immaturity. And the word child here, the Greek is nepios, N-E-P-I-O-S, and it really means one without understanding. It means infant. It means young person or underage child, whereas the word owner, child and owner, means kurios. It means lord or master. So he's contrasting the child, even though they're the heir of everything, are underage, they're immature, and therefore they're under guardianship, and they're no different than a slave. Now, ancient cultures had a very marked distinction between childhood and adulthood. It was an event that marked a very major demarcation when you became a man or a woman from childhood. Only in modern times have we extended childhood and delayed adulthood by something we call adolescence. And I know 30-year-olds that are still adolescent. And you do too. And part of the reason is, is because of our culture glorifies youth. And part of the reason is we are unwilling to let our young people suffer and struggle. That's how you get an adult. Scar tissue and calluses. That's how you became an adult. Those of you that claim the status, right? In Jewish culture, this took place at 12. 12 years old. Ceremony was called either a bar mitzvah or ba mitzvah for girls. They are now sons or daughters of the law. That's what that means, bar mitzvah. Son of the law, daughter of the law. They have literally passed out of their earthly father's responsibility and they're responsible directly to God for keeping his law when they're 12 years old. In Greece, the ceremony was called apaturia and literally part of that ceremony involved cutting off all the long hair, both male and female. Your hair was short. I didn't cut it all off, but they shortened the hair. That was part of the territory. Back in the 70s, I think there were probably some parents that said, yeah, let's go back to that. <laughs> the Romans had a coming-of-age ceremony called Liberaria, and it usually took place about 17 years old. They would take them in Rome to the Forum for a ceremony, and it was the end of childhood, and as part of the symbolism of that childhood, they would bring all their childhood toys and leave them, abandon them. I am now an adult. I am leaving my Barbie dolls and my whatever it happens to be, my trucks, etc. I'm putting away childish things, I'm an adult. So Paul says, look, before coming of age, before the child goes through this coming of age ceremony, the child is going to ultimately inherit everything. But while they're a child, they're not much different than a slave, right? The child really owns everything, but they really don't control anything, right? The father is the current owner and the child is the future owner. The father's already made his last will and testament, and the child will surely inherit everything based on the promise of the father. But the child cannot have the estate yet. They're immature, they're young, they're unable to do that. So the Roman father would appoint a trusted advisor, usually a very trusted family slave, to be the caretaker for the child. And the guardian's responsible not just for the moral development of the child, but they would also appoint managers to care for the estate, for the assets at that point. So when the young child was immature, they didn't give orders. They took orders from their guardian. 
who was a slave under the care and appointment of the father. And there was a fixed date set by the father when the child became an adult, whether it was 12 or 16 or 17, there was a set date when the father said, this son or this daughter is now an adult. And Paul is saying, just like Roman father kept their immature child under guardianship, right? Under discipline, under care and watch, under the law, God keeps spiritually immature people under the restrictions of the law before Christ. But God had a precise date when they would become adults and under the law no longer applied to them because now they were saved by faith. So Paul is using the underage child from Roman culture as a metaphor for how God kept his spiritually immature people under the law until Christ. Verse 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of Omun, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Here's the principle. Jesus came to earth to buy us from the slave market of sin, set us free, and adopt us into his forever family. Jesus came to earth to buy us from the slave market of sin, set us free, and adopt us into his forever family. <coughs> Paul says, before then you were kept under the elemental things. Elemental things literally means things placed side by side in a row. Like A, B, C, D, E, like one, two, three, four, five, right? These are elementary principles. Your one, two, threes, your ABCs. Paul says, before Christ came, we were all spiritual children. And we were literally restricted by the elementary things of the world. The do's this and the don't do that. Elementary things like man-made religion, like cultural traditions, like human law, like common sense, like cultural taboos like human philosophy. These are all elementary things, but God used those things to help keep humanity from doing really foolish things. You know, as much as we trash the law because it's unable to change the human heart, can you imagine the culture without law? Can you imagine? So as much as we say the law is unable to change the human heart, it is very, very necessary to provide some semblance of order, even for fallen humans. If you don't believe that, all you need to look at is when a hurricane comes up or there's a dam break up north, northern California, or fear of that, and the police leave a place and tell people to leave, what happens to the houses that are left? They're burglarized, they're looted, almost within minutes. Paul says, before Jesus came, we were restricted by all these rules. But they were necessary. How many of you have children or grandchildren or no younger people? I know one day you were, but those days are long gone, right? So think about your young children or your younger grandchildren, right? When they were immature, or still are immature, and they're lacking in judgment, do you restrict them? Of course you do. And you restrict them because you love them and you restrict them for their own safety and their protection. And of course, when they're infants, you restrict them in a crib or a playpen. As they grow, they graduate into a real bed. They move from a tricycle to a bicycle to a car. But long before then, they have, what do you call them? Car seat systems. Right, very expensive systems. You have to restrain them now. And if you don't meet the height and weight, you can literally restrict a child of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 and a car seat system until they meet the height and the weight. That would be an example of pretty restrictive stuff. Our children go from 7.30 p.m. bedtimes till midnight curfews as they grow. As they mature, they move from milk to solid food, from play dates to real dates to marriage. As they mature, they can safely handle more freedom and more responsibility. And Paul says, in God's perfect time, he sent Jesus to free people from the slavery of the law 
and then to adopt them into his family as mature children. You know, God has always controlled history. But most of God's intervention in history is invisible, isn't it? It's behind the scenes. You don't see his hand visibly. But when God's eternal calendar indicated the fullness of time, God very visibly intervened in human history by sending us in Jesus Christ. God took on human flesh, right, human form, and lived as a man among us. And, first, and John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. And the Bible calls this time the fullness of time. And God had been providentially preparing the world for centuries for this fullness of time. You know, at the time of Christ's birth, the Roman world was literally looking for a deliverer. They were so ready for change. The old pagan religions were dying. Human philosophy was increasingly seen as being empty of meaning. Mystery religions were on the crease, and people were spiritually hungry. And you can see that even in Israel, because when John the Baptist came on the scene, people literally abandoned the cities and went out in the desert. They were spiritually hungry. So God had prepared the soil, if you will, for the coming of Christ. The time certainly was right religiously, the fullness of time from God's perspective, because the Old Testament canon was complete. The law, the prophets, the writings, the history, the last of the prophets, Malachi, the Old Testament canon was finished. The Jewish synagogue system was in place to facilitate worship and education and legal process. And one of the reasons the synagogue system was so cru crucial from God's perspective is, where did Paul always go first to present the gospel? To the synagogues. So that was a communication mechanism that God wanted in place before Jesus came. Had to have a synagogue system because that's where missionary work was going to take place initially. The time was right culturally. Alexander had made the Roman world a Greek world. The lingua franca of the Roman Empire was Koine Greek, common Greek. Everybody spoke the same language. Everybody wrote the same language for the most part. So the facilitation of the gospel, the ability to communicate it, you had a common language, you had a common culture, that would greatly facilitate uh, the communication of the gospel. Rob's going to show you just a brief network of the, of the roads of the ancient world. The time was certainly right politically. Rome had built a, 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 a transportation system, a road system that literally connected the entire empire. They also had facilitated the system of law that resulted in the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Roman army protected that peace. So you have communication systems, religious systems, transportation systems. You have Roman peace. You have travel facilitated by road systems. You have legal process that makes travel safe. All of this greatly facilitated the spread of the gospel and led to God's fullness of time. Warren Wiersbe comments that Christ's coming was not an accident, it was an appointment. And God had been preparing a divine appointment with humankind for centuries. Paul says this, this Messiah, this Jesus, he was born of a woman and he was born under the law. And that's unique because Jesus was the only God-man in history. He's fully God and fully human. His father was God, his mother was human. He had to be fully God in order to conquer sin and death, and he had to be fully human in order to represent us and be our substitute in order of taking our death away, our, our sin away, right? So he was qualified to keep God's law because he kept God's law perfectly as God, and he had to be fully man in order to take our place. So Paul says, this Messiah was God-man. He was born under the law. He was born a Jew, and he kept every command perfectly. He earned the righteousness that God demanded, that perfect righteousness, in order to forgive our sins. So Paul's told us who came, God's son, when he came in the fullness of time, how he came, born as obviously the son of God and the son of man, and now Paul tells us why he came. He said he came to redeem those who are under the law. And the redeem word literally means to buy out of the slave market. To buy out of the slave market. The purpose of the incarnation was redemption. Everyone in this room who has, has been saved and who is by faith trusted in Jesus Christ has been literally purchased, bought out of the slave market of sin by Christ's perfect sacrifice. 
And Jesus Christ gave himself as the purchase price to buy us out of the slave market of sin. Right? For those of you that have never struggled with addictions of any kind, uh, being a slave to the law or being a slave to sin may be somewhat academic to you. If you know people that struggle with addictions of any kind, you understand the slavery of sin. I've never struggled with addictions, but Brad's slavery has always been his mouth. I can dig a hole so fast with my tongue, you cannot believe. I can excavate six stories down in five minutes. So my addiction, if you will, my sin has always been my tongue. It's an amazing testimony of God's grace that he would use this tongue that used to run out of control to bring glory to his name. That's the mercy and the redemption of God. And if you looked at your own life, the things that used to you be enslaved to, God can use to bring glory to his name and set you free from whatever that addiction was, whatever that sin was, whatever that slavery was. That's probably the best word. We've all been redeemed out of the slave market of sin. But God went far beyond rescuing us and setting us free and then just turning us loose. Whoever God rescues, he adopts. God does not do pet rescues and then turn the adoption over to somebody else. You know, you rescue the pet out of this bad situation and then you bring it to a shelter and let somebody else. If you're rescued by Jesus, he adopts you into his own family. And the word adoption here literally means to place into sonship. It means to give the status of sonship, daughtership to someone who is not one's natural child. The Bible uses three terms for adoption. One is natural adoption. And there are adoptions in Scripture. Pharaoh's daughter adopted. Mordecai adopted. Some of you are struggling with that. Mordecai adopted Esther. Yeah, he did. His uncle adopted her, right? God also adopted nations. He adopted Israel as his child, as his son, Exodus 4. And the last one, the most precious one, is spiritual adoption. It's literally the act of God's grace where he brings redeemed people into his family and shares all the blessings that he has provided for them. You know, um, before biological birth, what happens is you have some fun and what follows is a child. Some of you are still trying to figure out what I just said. <laughs> some of you are wondering where that kid came from. If you have more than two, you should have figured it out by now. <laughs> Adoption, on the other hand, is always a deliberate, conscious, and in many cases, very expensive choice by the parent. In the Roman world, no one adopted infants. Infant mortality was so high, you would never adopt an infant. They might not survive. People seldom adopted toddlers because their character was unknown and they might turn out badly. The vast majority of adoptions were Roman fathers adopting adult male sons as adults. And adoption placed a new family member into all the privileges and blessings of adulthood. The adopted person gained all the rights, responsibilities, the same as a biological son in their new family, and they completely lost all their old rights in their own family. Right? In the eyes of the law, when you were adopted into a new family, you were a new person. You had a new identity. You had a new name. And all the debts and obligations of your previous family were no longer yours. They were abolished. Paul says, when God adopted you into his family, you are a new person. You have a new name. You have a new identity. You have a new life. What does 2 Corinthians 5 say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. See, before you and I were adopted into God's family, we were slaves in Satan's kingdom. Amen? Now we belong to God's family. You're not foster children in God's family. You're not distant cousins. You know, you're not the redheaded stepchild. When you're adopted in God's family, you are full-fledged son and daughter of the king of kings. One of the most intimate terms 
that God ever uses. I am still amazed that he would adopt us into his family. 1 John 3, 1. John is trying to express the great love of God, our Heavenly Father. And he says, look, you want evidence of the great love of God? See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. See, God goes way beyond turning you loose from the slave market and buying you back. He adopts us into his own family, calls us his name. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Verse 7, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here's the principle. When God adopted us into his family, he gave us his spirit as the down payment on our future inheritance. When God adopted us into his family, he gave us his spirit as the down payment on our future inheritance. You know, when a child is, is fostered or adopted or, or, or brought into a blended family, that's probably even more common today if you were going to talk about the, the experience of adoption. A lot of times it's a blended family relationship that is kind of the proxy for that. It's one thing to be invited into the home. It's another thing to be invited into the family. That's a different issue. It's more than a positional relationship. It's an experiential relationship, right? This is amazing. So God is a very generous God. He gives us his spirit when he adopts us in his family. We're not second cousins twice removed somewhere back east. He gives us himself. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his name. He gives us his identity. He gives us his nature. We belong and we have an intimate relationship so that we actually can call him Abba. And that's the Hebrew word for daddy. Daddy. We experience an intimate trusting relationship between us and our Heavenly Father. When I was very young, one of the things I always remember is I loved climbing into my dad's lap and having him read. And my dad was a reader and he would read books. And that's one of the most priceless things I think you can do uh, to convey this sense of Abba, this sense of Daddy, if you want to do that with your grandchildren. Um, put them in your lap, read books to them. That's the picture here. So in the Roman Empire, slavery was a very common practice. There were about 60 million or so people enslaved. And slavery in the Roman Empire, by the way, had nothing to do with ethnicity or gender or race. Anyone could be enslaved and virtually anyone could be set free. You were usually enslaved because of debt repayment. You know, you owed somebody money and didn't pay it back. You didn't declare bankruptcy. They just put you in slavery until you paid it back, right? Labor worked it out. If you owed back taxes, the government could enslave you. There was no IRS negotiation. You were just put in slavery until you paid the money back, the back taxes back. Or many, many times simply being captured in battle. You know, you happen to be part of a state that was at war with Rome and they, they won the war, enemy soldier, you were captured, right? Losing a war with Rome. Many Christians today, even though they've been set free by Christ, adopted into his family, still find themselves back under the slavery of the law. Believing that we have to please God by hard work. Find ourselves under the slavery of addictions, bad habits, legalism, license, friends that influence us wrongly. The reality is Jesus has already set us free from slavery to sin. And you and I now have the supernatural power to just say no. That was an easy statement, drug addiction, Nancy Reagan authored it. It's a good line. But without the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't have the capacity to just say no to sin, do we? We're slaves to it. You now have the power because you've been given the Holy Spirit as part of your family membership. You now have the supernatural power to just say no and make it stick. God has adopted us into our family, his family. Here at Valley Baptist Church, you often hear us talk about three things. Belong, grow, serve. Don't you hear those three words? Belong, grow, serve. As part of God's family, you can belong. Here, 
In every family, however, things need to get done for the family to function, right? You can't spectate in a family, you gotta participate. Our church family is no different. Stuff needs to get done. And if you want to grow, the best way I know how to grow is by serving. The best way I know how to grow is by serving. Whether that's serving in the church, whether that's serving outside the church, whether that's serving uh, uh, an elder who needs your care, whether that's serving a neighbor, whether that's serving by babysitting your grandchildren, whatever the service is, if you want to grow spiritually, get involved in serving. It will exercise your spiritual muscles. And if you're already loving and serving Jesus, my encouragement today is do not grow weary in doing good. Keep it up. It matters. It counts. If you're raising children, you've got your discipleship program right in front of you, and it's probably the most practical application of your Christian life because if you want to mature, be a parent. It will show you where you're not mature. It's hard work, and yet it's the most rewarding calling that God has called you to do. If you're not serving, let me invite you. can change your life. can change your life. Okay, let's summarize. Number one, the law is like the never-satisfied drill sergeant in boot camp who motivates us to graduate. Graduate to faith. Number two, those who belong to God's family can do life together because in Christ we are both united and equal. Number three, Jesus came to earth to buy us from the slave market of sin set us free and adopt us into his forever family. And lastly, when God adopts us into his family, he gives us his spirit as the down payment on our future inheritance. I want you to think about this adoption this coming week. Lord willing, we'll be continuing on in Galatians in coming weeks. This is one of the most amazingly intimate expressions of the love that God our Heavenly Father has for us, that he would invite us and make us full members of his family with all the privileges and responsibilities of being a family member. Now that you know, do. I love you all. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.